The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater commercial SUV with over 2,000 litres of cargo space, two-ton towing capacity and legendary four-wheel drive technology. MitsubishiMotors.ie This is Jonathan Healy on The Right Hook. The recent controversy surrounding seminarians at Maynooth has put fresh focus on how the church treats homosexuals with a number of voices calling on the church to take a, a more progressive attitude towards members of the LGBT community. Fine Gael Senator Jerry Buttermer is on the line. Jerry, good evening to you. Hi, Jonathan. How are you? I posed the question just before the break there and I, I kind of listened back to it in my own head when the ads are playing. Whether or not gay priests should be allowed and of course that ignores the fact there are already gay priests, that there are men in the priesthood who are gay. I mean, that's that's most likely a fact. Well, that is a most likely effect, and I suppose we're focusing on one part of it, and the headline yesterday's, in yesterday's Evening Echo uh, was probably a bit more than what I had said in terms of what I was talking about, was that this period, now this latest episode, is another opportunity for the church, not just in Ireland, but in the world and collectively for us as members to look at how we view women, how we look at the issue of celibacy, how we view LGBT people, uh, and how we can make our church more inclusive. And as somebody who spent five years in a seminary, has a degree in theology, who was a person of faith, uh, I, I think that we're, we're focusing on one nine narrow prism uh, of the presentation that Dermot Martin made, which is his right and his prerogative, and nobody can condone any type of activity that would put people under pressure. But... The story is being looked at from the kind of, you know, it's a gay dating app story. It's not. It's about how the church views all of us and how we can make our church mm. more inclusive. And, you know, I think the culture in the National Seminary is one part. Uh, the removal of students to Rome is an answer to that. But the wider and the more interesting point for me uh, is that how do we allow people to become more inclusive and more involved and participative in the church that reflects a modern world? and. If you look at what's happened across the world, Jonathan, the repression of people because of sexuality or religion uh, presents an opportunity for the church that, is, that I'm a member of and that many members of your audience are, the Catholic Church, to be more inclusive, whether it's to do with celibacy, women priests or gay men and women serving in many different types of ministries. Other church models work and change and have changed mm. and I can't see why our church can't do so. You've always talked about your faith um, and how important it is to you but I suppose a lot of people wouldn't have known that not only did you train to be a priest but you actually you spent five years in Maynooth. I did and I would say to you Jonathan uh, 26 years later that the people that I encountered in terms of the deans, the professors uh, or spiritual directors were very genuine honest people uh, one of one of one, of, I would say that many of them would have been role models of mine that would that would inspire me. And I'm thinking in particular someone like Father Tom Clancy from Cork, who was a tremendous passionate priest, a spiritually a, a wonderful man who challenged and motivated us. Um, but I wouldn't question any of their integrity or their or, or their motivation. But it, it it was a different era, a different model. The church has moved uh, in terms of how it's perceived now in the light of its handling of child sex abuse and. And, and the apostolic visitation a number of years ago. Um, and, and, you know, if you can argue that the moving of bishops by the papal nuncio through the Pope to bring in outside bishops to diocese is a, is a, is a sea change, then it's not. Mm. What I want to see happen is our church becoming a broader church. And I, this isn't Jerry Bottomer, the gay Jerry Bottomer, you know, wanting everything to be gay. It's not that at all. It's about a church that reflects women, that, that, that reflects upon how we view celibacy, 
We have married priests in our church now, men who've become late vocations who are grandparents. Uh, I, I know yeah, one yeah. particular gentleman who's a, 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 a widow. His wife died. He became a priest. He's a wonderful priest. Um, and I, but, I but the point is, I suppose the point is, Jerry, that he had to become a widower before he was allowed to become a priest. And and technically speaking, that you, you as a gay man, um, you know, I didn't know at, at, at what stage you were in, in the process of coming out or accepting it yourself when you were in Maynooth. But I mean, if you were a gay man, it certainly would you wouldn't have been as welcome as if you were a straight man, if I could put it that way. But certainly going back no, 25 and, years and, and, ago. Absolutely not, and that's that's part of the difficulty that we and other churches have embraced gay people and and ordained them. They've ordained women, they've ordained married priests, and their church is not a diminished church. It's a better, more enhanced one. And and the model I would look at is the is is the model espoused by Bishop Paul Colton in Cork, uh, and and how he progresses his church and the views. And it's about values, and we all have values, and we all pray, and we all believe. Uh, but it's about how we rep, how we view the status of people and maybe I am progressive within the church but there are today many gay people playing a role within the church but it's 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 not a full role there are women who are playing a lesser role in the church there are there are people who are divorced who are playing a lesser role and we should be able to encompass and embody all of these strains of society and strands of society rather and make our church more inclusive yeah and and I hear hear you Jerry. but at the same time when you go back and you drill into what the church's central teaching is that you know we are all sinners but for some reason they see the sin of homosexuality in a different way to the way they see other sins and and you know you you can talk about preaching and getting a more inclusive church but that's not what's coming from rome effectively maybe pope francis has made overtures but there's, there's certainly no dramatic sea change on the way no, and that's the disappointing aspect. And to be fair to Pope Francis, he's reached out to divorced people, he's reached out to gay people, and he's reaching out to a wide variety of people within the church to make it a better church. But the disappointing part for me is that we are failing to listen. There are people in parishes today yearning for spirituality. You know, if we want to worship at the, at the, at the altar of consumerism, then every day we can go into shopping centers and shopping malls across the country and see part of it. But as a, as a, as a person of faith, then our church must become more inclusive and must listen. And that's perhaps the biggest disappointment is that in the past week, we focused on one narrow little prism when the bigger picture is how can we make our church better? How can we make it different? Um, and, and that's the bigger picture that we face as a church across the world. And the model of church that we follow when we want to follow is one where the church is about the people of God and the people of God uh, are what the church is yeah. about and we're nothing without each other. Well, um, and I just think that the missed opportunity, Jonathan, because... The hierarchy, you know, there are very decent men and I have a very uh, interesting week with my former classmate of mine, Father Fintan Monaghan, has now been made the new Bishop of Killoo and I wish him well. Fintan's a very decent, honourable man and I hope that people like him can re-lead the renaissance of the church to be more yeah. inclusive and more open and giving people who are gay, who are playing a role today in parishes, be it as, as cantors or as readers, but in a different way where they can't be free to be open in some cases. Yeah, but the in pro- an ordained yeah, okay. way where we can make the church better like the Church of Ireland does. Yes, uh, but in many ways, Jerry if change does come and there's no sign that it's going to come anytime soon, the game might be up for the church and how it has operated. Because you look at the number of seminarians that we were talking about in Maynooth who were caught up in this scandal, 
and you're talking a couple of dozen. Uh, the number of priests who were sent from the Dublin Archdiocese over to Rome was what? Seven. It's not as if the church has an abundance of people who are coming forward now to sign up to the lifestyle and the belief system that's in place for celibate men. Um, and if you don't have priests, you don't have a congregation. And we'd be looking at a very different church in, in 20, 30, 40 years time as a consequence. No, I think you will have a congregation. What we need to have is a, is a changing of the model to be a more inclusive and more accepting Yeah, but what, what's the likelihood I mean, of that? I know you're trying your best to, to reform it as best you can as a lay person, but don't, lay people can only do so much. What's the likelihood of that evolution happening? I have to put it to you, it's probably very slim. It is slim, but we need to keep, you know, beating that drum. We need to keep advocating, you know. There are many people who've tried to do that over the, over time and they have succeeded in many ways. And that's why I still... I'm hopeful. That's why I think it's important that people of faith. I'm an anti-church. I'm I'm very pro-faith. I'm very pro-having a faith. I'm disappointed with the institution that is church, uh, but I'm not disappointed by the people who are the ordinary, the, the, the people of God on public day, the men and women who worship every day. We all aspire to try and do that, but it's a model of church that we need to change. The Church of Ireland have done so. It's been a difficult journey. It's been a, a journey fraught with tension, but it has it's taken leadership by people who have taken a stance both at at at, at, at lay level, yeah. at 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 clerical level, and at, at at the hierarchy or at Episcopal level. And I would hope that in time that people who reflect upon you know the events of the past week will see that it's not just about you know a gay subculture in a seminary. Yeah. It's about how we can make our seminary and our places of worship and the men and women who lead our church a more open and accepting church and there are people yearning for that John. Do do you know what I think is funny about what happened last week and the scandal that came out in Maynooth and talk of Grinder and all of this is that it was almost as much a discussion about celibacy and the rules of celibacy clearly being ignored or flaunted or whatever you want to call it in Maynooth rather than the fact that there were priests or trainee priests who were gay you know, is that a signal of how Irish society has changed, Jerry? That we're accepting that there are going to be gay priests no more than there's going to be gay politicians or gay doctors. Uh, it's more a hang-up we have with celibacy and the enforced rule of priesthood than anything else. Well, that's part of the that's part of the question. Then you it, you pose a very good question. I mean, but it goes back to a fundamental in terms of the type of model of church we want to see. Um, and, and it's about reflecting society. And I'm not talking about, you know, being anti-church or throwing away all the values. I'm all for values and I'm all for principle and I'm all for faith. But, but the society that we live in is a changed one. We're a more open, we're a more pluralistic world within, in terms of how we see and how we, we can look at the world. Um, and I think that the church has to reflect upon that, be, the, be it through celibacy, be it through the role of women, uh, and be it through the role of, 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 of gay people. And I do hope that they, they can reflect upon that. I know you are right, it will take time, but you know, each year and in the Adlimina visits, the bishops go to Rome to meet the Pope, and I would hope as part of that discussion they will look at it. I, I don't in any way want to be a voice of discontent or discord about the Church. I, I, well, I, voices of discontent they, within the Church don't get very far, I'll tell you that much for nothing. No, but you have to strike you know, a step forward every every so often to make sure that we, 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 we are heard and you know, it isn't about being anti, it's about making sure that we bring change, positive change, that is a more reflective and representative part of society. And I think it would be great if we had married priests, if we had women priests, if we had gay priests. I, I don't see any reason why we can't. We have them in other churches and, and, and their faith hasn't diminished. You know, I, I, I have friends of mine who are in other, 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 other religions and, and they're, they're practicing and they're worshipping and they're, and they're leading 
estate communities. And I, I yeah. think that our society and our country would be a better place. We're amalgamating parishes. We're, we're sharing priests. We're sharing services now. There is a decline in vocations. But what there isn't, though, is, is a yearning for spirituality. And I do hope that in time that the, the leadership of our church will reflect upon that not just locally but internationally as well Alright, well just uh, a couple of text messages Listener says the church in Ireland is stuck in the dark ages for this reason it's dead now and in 20 to 40 years it'll be gone and someone else says correct me if I'm wrong but does it not say in the Bible that homosexuality is wrong it's not my view personally but that's what it says if you want to believe the Bible uh, why don't they believe that part I mean look you can get the Bible to pretty much justify anything in the world if you go and look in the certain parts of the Old Testament that doesn't necessarily mean it has the modern relevance in the church Jerry and, and I, I suppose at the end of the day you've come out as a gay man um, you know you, you're gay TD or gay senator now still Jerry Butterworth, the human being who goes to mass, I, I, you know, you 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 haven't been singled out in mass at any stage, and your faith hasn't been shaken by all of this. No, and and what I'm trying to say, Jonathan, is that as somebody who's a member of and who believes in that our church must evolve and re- represent all of us, that it, it's not doing that at the moment. And part of the media sensation is to is to is to is to, is to, is to tantalise me. Look at it through the the use of grinder or whatever. It's more than that. It, to me, it's a bigger picture of how we can make our church a better church. Right. You know, we lost an opportunity with Vatican II. You know, Pope Paul, John Paul II, in my opinion, regressed this morning in terms of the outlook. We won't go into the Benedictine time, but I was hopeful under Pope Francis, and I still am, that we can see okay. change. That's reflective and representative of the society we all live in. Jerry, you sound like you're being uh, you're, you're under attack from sirens. There, you better get off the well, road in I case they you, take you I, out. I, I tell you, I tell you where I am. I'm in the city of Providence. I just had a meeting with the Lieutenant Governor McGee uh, about the the city and county of Cork, where you and I are from, and about the importance of it, and <laughs> about the Cork Cork Boston connectivity and all. And is that is that is that the escort the out? It is. No, no, that's the escort for something. The city of Providence is a very diverse city as well, but it's uh, it's interesting that uh, the, the 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 police here don't take any have no point in the prisoners. So when they block off a street for whatever reason, there's uh, as a, as as I was speaking to, there's three or four police cars gone whisking by. But it isn't for me, I can assure you. Okay, good man. Politicians, even on their holidays, do a little bit of work. Jerry Bottomer, pleasure as always. Thank you very much for talking, Fine Gael, Senator. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Well, we've got some good performances uh, in Rio so far. No medals to talk about yet, but we're still all talking about the fact that Michael O'Reilly, the boxer, has been sent home after accidentally taking a supplement that contained a banned substance. He's going to face a ban now. could be up as two years. It might even be longer. The question is how this was allowed to happen in the first place. Brenda Buckley is a member of Sports Ireland's Anti-Doping Committee. He's the Professor of Pharmacology and Medicine at UCC. Brendan, you're very welcome to the programme. It's a pleasure, Jonathan. Thanks for inviting me. You, no doubt, have been watching this as a keen observer since the story broke last week. What have you made of it all? Well, it's been interesting to watch, and uh, I would just say that I know no more than I've read in the papers and heard on, on your uh, program. Um, but it's uh, it's a great tragedy. It's a, it's a real pity that this has happened, but it's a fairly typical phenomenon that, uh, you know, if that is the story, if it's a, a supplement that he took, uh, which inadvertently was... Uh, contained a banned substance. Uh, it's a very familiar story, in spite of the fact that 
uh, we in Sport Ireland and previously the Sports Council have been pushing very hard on the risks of taking supplements, um, particularly outside of the expert setting of the team's dietitian and you know, very controlled, knowledgeable circumstance. So casually taking a supplement, there's a very high probability you're going to get a banned substance in it. Yeah, and talk us through the type of advice that is given to athletes who are operating at this high level. Uh, you know, I'll go out, I'll, I'll eat whatever I want to eat. I don't take supplements, but if I wanted to, there's no prohibition on me as a private citizen to do it. But if I was an athlete, sure, I'd have to watch everything going into my mouth. Well, that's absolutely right. The athletes at this level are... Uh, on a particular high-performance scheme, which is financially supported by the Irish taxpayer through, the, through Sport Ireland. And with that goes a lot of responsibility to themselves and also to their uh, immediate and wider teammates in something like the Olympics. The, it's, it's pushed very hard that supplements are dangerous and... Um, you know, we have consistently advocated against people taking them. And the reason is that the word supplement is almost meaningless. So it, it sounds kind of innocuous. It sounds like something that you can just add to your diet to make up for a deficiency. But in fact, it covers mm. a broad spectrum of stuff from, you know, simple milk whey protein, which is fine, through to complex powders that come from unknown sources yeah. um, outside of the European Union with no traceability I, I, made I, in a concrete mixer. Yeah, Exactly, and God knows in what conditions. Uh, yeah. What is somewhat frustrating, I think, for everybody who is observing this, you, myself included in all of this, is at no point have we been told what the substance was. I mean, would that be a helpful addition to this debate if we knew what well, we're talking about? I, I, I don't think so at this stage, because we've got to remember that due process uh, has, has got to be followed here. And the athlete, you know, goes into a tribunal uh, with the assumption of innocence and this finding. And there is the opportunity to argue. Um, and that argument is based on what's been found and so forth. So the, the, the general public will find out, as I will find out myself, you know, at the right time. Mm. So I think it's it's reasonable that the athlete is given time to prepare a defence and that's done outside of the layer of publicity, particularly now that, you know, he's he's had to leave the village and come home and it's yeah. a very tough time for him. And, and when we read the statement from the Amateur Boxing Association saying they're disappointed Michael took a supplement without consulting the high-performance team, is it inevitable that this kind of thing is going to happen, that you can have the best in the world advising these athletes coming into pressurised situations and they can make an honest mistake or they can take something, and we're not saying this is, is present in the instant by any stretch, take something that they think they'll be able to get away with and they just won't mention it. Is it impossible to, to completely safeguard against this kind of thing from happening? Well, I think fundamental to being an athlete is that you are a bit of a risk taker anyway. And, you know, you throw in the lot of your life into being a full-time sports person. And that in itself is a gamble. Uh, so that there is a risk being taken just by the very fact of being an athlete. That's, so people, I think, are predisposed 
when they're under sufficient pressure, mm. you know, to, to yielding a little bit. And uh, what we very frequently see where athletes have been found with a banned substance, which is attributed by them to supplements, the following scenario occurs, you know, they go, the athlete perhaps goes to their local gym, uh, they're feeling a bit tired, they make a casual remark. Some fellow says, look, if you take this, I have a great supplement, I always take it, it's great, it contains nothing bad. If you mm. take that, it'll perk you up. That's the kind of stuff that happens. Yeah, but isn't it their responsibility? They have trained to this level, to yep. this degree, they're going to the Olympic Games, that they should know that that is too much of a risk, that they might yep. as well abandon the idea of getting on the plane if they're going to take that kind of risk. Well, I, I, I quite agree. And, you know, it is notable that there has only been one athlete found, uh, in spite of the fact that they're all tested very recently uh, mm. with this, uh, with, with, with the banned substance in, in, in their sample. Is, is there a wider issue here, do you think, Brendan, that you made that point about going to a gym and a guy says, ah, I'll give you something that'll perk you up. Aren't these supplements so endemic now in the likes of gyms and swimming pools and, and wherever people tend to gather uh, in the name of sport that the first instinct is to reach for a supplement rather than maybe train harder, maybe do something different to your diet? Yeah, you're completely right. And there's a lot of superstition. I mean, if you look at what athletes write down in their doping control form, you'll see frequently that people take lots of supplements. You know, people will declare a half a dozen vitamins and minerals and all sorts of stuff. And, uh, you know, there's a kind of a superstition that you just get a little bit of an edge. And it's pushed. This is a multi-billion dollar industry telling people that if they take something, it's going to make them a bit better. But it, by, by taking a single supplement, by taking anything, are yep. you not, by the nature of doing that, engaging your own sporting behaviour because you're trying to give yourself an artificial edge? Well, people will justify that to themselves by saying, well, you know, the, I'm not able to you know, get sufficient in my diet to keep my calories up, so I need to take extra protein or whatever. And that's, that's quite common. And it's done under supervision generally uh, by properly trained dietitians and mm. by the medical supervision of a team. But when you go off then and you kind of, you know, go out into the wild, so to speak, and somebody offers you a supplement which promises to burn fat and to give you bigger muscles, the temptation is very strong. Yeah. And, you know, some people, human nature always supervenes. Yeah. Now, if you, like... Just as a very simple example, there's a recent study, uh, I think from the Netherlands, which shows that supplements which claim either fat burning or muscle bulking, 35% or more of those contain banned substances. So a huge proportion. So, and you can go down like the local main street of medium-sized towns in Ireland into shops that sell stuff. And... If you look at the packages and you'll see all sorts of flashbang wallop, burn fast and gain muscle, um, you know, there's a high probability that those contain bands. Yeah, and you can buy it by the bucket load as well. It's not the case well, you, you can, buy it yeah. in a small jar. What's the learning to take from this? Because the Olympic Council of Ireland is going to have to learn. IABA is going to have to learn. I suppose Sport Ireland's anti-doping committee can hold its hand up and say, well, at least the system worked and we caught this. How do we move on from this to make sure that the next generation of athletes are indeed 
Michael O'Reilly, if he gets back into sport and gets back into the Olympic Games, that it doesn't happen again? Well, I think we just have to keep redoubling our efforts on education about supplements in particular. One of the things that Sport Ireland has been doing recently has been working you know, with the national body that uh, gyms join as a, as a kind of a, a trade association for gyms, uh, you know, to raise awareness in the gyms themselves. And I think that over time, that, that will gradually uh, have benefit as well. But, you know, if you, if you look at the whole culture of humans, I, I'm always struck by, you know, those Asterix comic books? Yes. And, uh, you know, the central character in that is a, a small fella who doesn't have natural strength or speed, but by taking a supplement which is made by the druid, um, you know, which may contain mistletoe and lobster, yes. uh, you know, he can beat a legion of Romans. And, you know, that, that's the stuff we read to our kids well, before I, they go to sleep. It also gives them substantial hair growth, which I think is a byproduct of some of the other <laughs> steroids that are out there as well. There's, there's uh, a bit of that, yeah. Brendan Buckley um, of the Department of Pharmacology and Medicine at University College Cork. Thanks for that, Brendan. Pleasure, Jonathan. All the best. Bye-bye. On the line now is David Walsh, who's the chief sports writer with the Sunday Times. David, uh, good evening to you. Yeah, good evening. Do you have sympathy for Michael O'Reilly at all? Um, on a personal level, you have to have sympathy for him because here's a guy who prepared for the Olympics, you know, the biggest event in his sport, and he gets to the eve of it. You know, he's, he's in Rio, and suddenly he's got to go home. Now, that's a traumatic thing. But if he's being honest, when he, when he looks in the mirror and wonders what went wrong, the reason why it went wrong is staring him back in that mirror because he behaved in an incredibly unprofessional way. Given the, given the kind of standards of preparation that any boxer competing for Ireland at the Olympic Games has to undergo, the idea of taking a supplement from somebody who's not part of the team, not having it checked by the team's medical personnel or, or the high-performance people at the, at the IABA, it's just mind-blowing. Mind I mean, it's kind of stupidity on a level that you really would not expect mm from an athlete at the highest level. Uh, Brendan, my previous guest point was that athletes by their nature are inherently risk takers and that sometimes that might explain what is clearly a stupid decision. Is, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, yeah, it probably is. But one man's risk taker is another man's unprofessional athlete. I mean, we want them to take risks maybe when they're in the ring. If, if, if you felt you were a little bit behind in a, in a bout, got to take a risk to get yourself back in it that's fine that's it you know intelligent risk taking but using supplements from somebody who's not certified who and the supplements haven't been verified uh, in any scientific way that's not risk taking really that's just plain stupidity mm. of course th this started uh, as a conversation which involved an Irishman, but the rest of the olympics has been going on and doping while no one has been caught doping in game yet uh, what we have is we have the spectre of doping completely hanging over this entire games and and has reared his head on a number of occasions and particularly in relation to some of the swimming events and uh, and athletes and swimmers who had previously been banned who were going on to perform exceptionally well and questions being asked of them this is a games that is probably going to be remembered as much for the allegations of doping and what Russia did or didn't do than the actual performance which in itself is very sad yeah, yeah, you could say it's that. I would say appalling. You're right that, that the drug cloud is 
is, is dense and dark over these Olympics, but it's that way because of the moral paradise of the International Olympic Committee. You know, you mentioned, Jonathan, what Russia did or didn't do. We know what Russia did. There is no question here. Um, Professor Richard McLaren produced a report that said, you know, Russia cheated at the Sochi Olympics two years ago. They're cheating. The conspiracy of cheating involved Ministry of Sport, the Russian High Performance Center, the Russian Anti-Doping Agency, the Russian Secret Service, the FSB, the Russian Anti-Doping Laboratory. Everybody who's anybody in sport and in the state of Russia conspired to make sure that Russia would win far more gold medals than they should have. They completely dominated those Olympics to a degree that you, that you rarely see. I mean, they won the medals table by a country mile. And it's just an obscenity now on the face of sport. Those Sochi Olympics are a, are a kind of, you know, a testimony to what happens when cheating gets totally out of control. Mm. For that, the IOC said to Russia, well, what you did was pretty appalling, but we're not going to punish you. Now, so of course these Olympics are under a cloud. I mean, we had um, Yulia Efimova, the Russian swimmer, you know, being kind of openly accused by her, her American rival, Lily King. And while you might understand the sentiments of, of Lily King, because Efimova has had one drug ban in her past and she fought to get in because the rules say if you serve your time, you're allowed to be back in. Lily King is unimpressed and they, and they have this horrible, distasteful kind of accusation, yeah. denial, stuff going on. Which overshadows and, the actual sport at the end of the day. Yeah, and, and, and you know, and Lily King has people in her team, i.e. Justin Gatlin, when I say her team, the US team, that have had two drug bans and are still here competing. And, and Justin Gatlin certainly a contender for the 100 metres. And yeah, when Lily King was asked about Justin Gatlin, she said, I don't think he should be here. Yeah. But she didn't go kind of attacking Justin Gatlin. She needed to be asked about him before she would discuss it. So um, my feeling is that athletes shouldn't shouldn't be getting into the business of publicly accusing others because it's a it's a very dangerous kind of um, it, it's a very dangerous thing. You know, you accuse somebody, but you don't really know the circumstances of why they got a ban. Yeah. They have served their time. The laws say if you serve your time, you're entitled to come back. You can disagree with that. But you can't accuse the person who has come back because that person is just playing by the rules as they now exist. Did the crime, served their time, came back. Yes. You're rightly critical of the International Olympic Committee because they they should have banned Russia based on evidence that would have probably stood up in a criminal court. Such was the standard that was achieved by WADA. But uh, when you look at what the Paralympic Committee did... They did ban all of Russia. Is that just a difference in the size of the cojones between the IOC and the Paralympic Committee that one went all the way and the other decided to fudge it? Yeah, I think it's more a difference in the size in, in, in the size of two relative organisations. I mean, the IOC is, is probably, you know, maybe you could say right up there with FIFA in terms of its world influence as a sporting body. The international... Um, um, Paralympic Council is a much smaller operation governing a much smaller Olympics, the Paralympics. So the IPC is much less governed by politics than the IOC. I mean, we, we know as a matter of fact that, that Thomas Bach, the president of the IOC, has a close relationship with Vladimir Putin. They've always got on well. They've been in each other's company many times. Was that a factor in how the IOC 
reached its decision to allow you know all but the Russian track and field team to compete at um, in Rio, I would say yes, it was. Uh, and and I don't feel that your average international Olympic Committee member is overly bothered about doping. I don't think he comes to the Olympics and saying uh, and says, yeah, we're going to watch all this sport, but how much of it do we believe? Uh, the people on the International Olympic Committee um, enjoy incredible privilege. You know, mm. your, your your ordinary member, you know, is on a, a daily allowance of, I think it's about £360 a day. The executive board members are on a, a daily allowance of £670 a day. Now, given that all the transport is paid for, given that their hotel is paid for, given that their their, their meals are paid for, why do they need this? extraordinary daily allowance these executive well, board members i mean most of the ioc committee members are the ioc committee members are going to earn more money during these olympic games than the majority of the athletes taking part david the way you describe it it the ioc isn't that far behind fifa well they they've, they've just sent out such a message um, in relation to russia because they know and we know that Russia committed this most appalling corruption at the Sochi Olympics and in the years leading up to Sochi. We've been, Professor Richard McLaren has said a number of times since his report came out, what I've, con- what I've put in my report are not allegations. They are facts that I totally believe would stand up to scrutiny in a court of law. Now, this is a very senior law professor from Canada mm-hmm. saying that the evidence I have would easily stand the test of a criminal prosecution. And the IOC are saying, well, we need to complete the investigation. Fudge, fudge, fudge. Uh, um, So what the IOC have done is dealt a huge blow to the anti-doping movement. Uh, It is with a certain amount of dread that I pick up the Sunday Times now to see what's going to be in it this week. I know you had a big story about a Kenyan official last week who was caught on camera. Is there more of that to come without going into detail, David? Is there more as part of your undercover investigations in the Sunday Times into what's been going on in terms of doping? Well, the thing about it is, that, you know, that, I mean, if you if you grow up in Africa and, you know, there's a good chance that you're going to be earning far less, you know, than what we would call a living wage. And, and there is money to be made from tipping people off about drug tests or hiding drug tests well, there's a good chance that you will do it. And there, there is, you know, it's perfectly reasonable to say that the distribution of kind of, you know, of, of anti-doping structures in the various countries is incredibly uneven. Some places have pretty good systems that work. Then you've got Russia at the other end of the spectrum where the state conspires to hide positive drug tests as they've been doing for years. And then you have a place like, we've seen in the recent past Jamaica, which has been so successful in, in, in sprinting events, Kenya, so successful in, in, in long distance um, track and field, just not, not being able to kind of put up for lack of resources and maybe lack of will, not being able to apply any kind of proper anti-doping structure. And of course, if you don't have an anti, an anti-doping system, the likelihood of cheating grows pretty significantly. David Walsh, Chief Sports Writer with the Sunday Times. Thanks for joining us on The Right Hook. 
The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie If you are listening to the programme, you have either come back from your holidays, you are on your holidays or if you're very lucky, you're looking forward to your holidays in the next couple of weeks. And it has been a bumper year for tourism. The first six months of 2016 have seen an increase in the number of overseas visitors of 13%. That is absolutely huge. And you can just tell from walking around Dublin how many tourists are already on the island and how much they're spending. Niall Gibbons is CEO of Tourism Ireland. Niall, you must be... Cock, cock the hoop, as they'd say, at a 13% increase. Well, good evening, first of all. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, we're delighted. It's a 13% increase, 4.4 million arrivals in the first half of the year, on top of a record year last year as well. Uh, and it just means, you know, this is very good news for uh, Ireland. It's very good news for jobs. There's 40,000 more people working in tourism now than there was five years ago. We've seen five strong years of momentum now. And uh, to have results like this is very positive. It puts us uh, in good stead heading into the second half of this year. Summer season has been very good. The reaction from around the country is that not just are the urban areas doing well, but rural areas doing well too, which is very good to hear. We we are an inherently negative people here in Ireland. We'd go, why would they want to come here? Sure, the weather's terrible. What is drawing them? What 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 are the sales points that are there now that weren't there five years ago? Well, in contrast to what you say, while we may sound negative to ourselves, the perception of people overseas is that we're terribly positive. Uh, the Irish are friendly, warm, engaging people, and that's the one thing that our international surveys show time and time again, and it's one thing that makes people want to come back. Uh, obviously, the stunning scenery, uh, as expressed through the Wild Atlantic Way, uh, the friendliness of the people, and Irish culture, which is very distinctive uh, and, and very warm, and that's something that attracts people to. Uh, obviously, we've got great new stories to tell, like the Wild Atlantic Way, Ireland's Ancient East, uh, Dublin's still a major magnet, 80% of all people coming but th- into that, Ireland. That is being countered though because even in my own little travels around when I was on holidays in Kerry the Wild Atlantic Way I don't know who thought it up but they deserve to have a little statue put up to them somewhere because never before in Irish tourist history since we decided that kissing a stone in Cork was going to give you the gift of the gab has someone come up with as big a wheeze as this. It was always there it's not like they improved the roads but just through clever marketing we've gotten people driving from Donegal to West Cork. Yeah, well, look, fair play to the, the original idea came through our colleagues in Falkshire, Ireland, who developed the product on the ground, the international marketing carried through by Tourism Ireland. And it plays into a, a very positive international space in markets like France and Germany, uh, you know, where people like dramatic coastline. It's very, very impressive. But look, it's all part of a big Ireland story out there that's playing very well into the tourism space. Look at the North American market, for example. Our competitors in Great Britain used to attract 4 million visitors. They now have 2.9 million. Ireland used to have 800,000. This year we'll have 1.5 million people coming from 16 gateways in North America. And if you look at the comparison across Europe, of all US travel into Europe, Ireland attracts 10%. It's like a foreign direct investment story. It's a huge positive story from the US side. So um, we've got new routes to come still. Aer Lingus opening new routes from Hartford, Connecticut in September and also Newark, adding to the new service they have from LA. So that gives 12 gateways from the United States, four from Canada, including a new direct service from Vancouver, which started in May. And you're talking about all the transatlantics coming in. They're coming in from the Middle East now as well. Etihad and Emirates are increasing the number of flights now, different kind of offering, I suppose, coming on those flights. But at the same time, when they get here, the experience we want to be a positive one. We spent a long time, Niall, and you and I had this conversation that the second that things start to improve, the prices are going to go up. We've had that this year. Hotels have become quite expensive again. 
Yeah, I think we need to look at the overall package. I mean, you, you mentioned the air access thing, and I would want to credit Emirates and Etihad, who fly in between the two of them 28 times a week, being 9,600 seats a week during the summer period. It opens up 10 gateways into India, five into China, direct flights then almost into Australia and New Zealand this year as well for the first time. But um, in relation to the demand is very strong. Uh, we haven't had any new hotels built during the last number of years, so prices have gone up there. But bear in mind that you know during the summer season, it's very, very busy. As we head into the latter part of this year, uh, there are no guarantees. We still have to maintain a very strong we, we marketing ha- We momentum. have a capacity problem, not just here in Dublin, but we have a capacity problem in Cork. And you could argue during the peak summer months, and there are peak summer months for a reason, right along the Wild Atlantic Way, we could do with more rooms. We don't need necessarily need massive hotels. We just need more rooms. I think the peak problem exists mainly in Dublin. We're about 5,000 hotel rooms short in Dublin at the moment and there's no immediate solution on the horizon because there's a limited number of rooms in, in supply. We have to work on the shoulder seasons. We have to work on the off-peak periods. There's some very, very good fares coming into Ireland if people can be flexible in when they're travelling uh, and what time of the week. Uh, there's some very good hotel uh, availability uh, in September, October, November. Some really good festivals coming up in Dublin. The Theatre Festival, you've got the Bram Stoker Festival, the New Year's Festival. We're pushing them very hard that off-peak business when there's very, very good value. We also can't take things for granted because while we talk about 13% growth in the first half of this year, as we head into 2017, the clock goes back to zero. In other words, the people that have come this year aren't coming again next year. And if we talk about growth next year of be it 5% or whatever, it's actually 105% we have to start off again. So it's really important that we continue to offer the great welcome that we do, but also that we continue to offer really good value for money. And on that point, our nearest neighbours who you send us the most visitors across the water from Britain um, it, we are less attractive to come here now as a result of their decision to leave the European Union main reason being sterling is not worth as many euros as it was six weeks ago or seven weeks ago whenever the, the vote was taken so have we already seen a drop in the number of British tourists coming over and can we expect that trend to continue Well people who have booked their holiday are already going to come and uh, certainly we're very conscious of what's happening with Brexit we've had an industry meeting just in the last couple of weeks to monitor developments there's two major impacts of Brexit first of all there's just the overall economic uncertainty which it creates uh, that makes people less likely to travel and in relation to the the currency issue sterling is about 13% less value against the euro that makes the eurozone as a whole more expensive so bear in mind that UK people about 50 million people from the UK travel abroad for holidays every year for Spain, Italy, France Ireland and everywhere in the eurozone all our competitors competitors are also more expensive it actually makes the UK more attractive as a domestic destination but um, there are obviously possible gains too because with the dollar against sterling the way it is you're likely to see a major influence of US travellers into the UK next year and 30% of our business by the way from the US comes backtracked via the UK so there are lots of swings and roundabouts and it's too early to call on how the numbers are going to go but we're, we're acutely aware that as we head into quarter four and quarter one Great Britain visitors take a lot of short breaks and we would hope to maintain momentum and we've got a 4 million euro marketing campaign between now and the end of the year to keep that momentum going but it's something that we have to keep a very close eye on Britain accounts for 42% of our visitors about 24% of our spend and it's important that we make sure that we develop a balanced portfolio portfolio of visitors in the coming years. Do you ever run out of ideas, Niall? I mean, we've, you've literally done everything in your time in Tourism Ireland to entice people here. The idea that you've the Wild Atlantic Way, the green imagery, you've done the festivals, you've lit every single building around the world up green for St. Patrick's Day. I mean, is it a challenge to try and keep coming up with new ways to try and entice people here? I know you're very creative people working with you, but, you know, what do you do next that makes oh, yeah. it 
this more attractive than last year's offering? No, we have a great team in fairness in Tourism Ireland around the world. There are about 150 people in 23 locations. And I think we just have to keep our head very steady and say we can't take this for granted. We work very hard. We need to innovate. We come up with new, come up with new ideas all the time. Um, and, and I think we've been doing that. And as we head into develop a new three-year plan as we're developing now, we feel we're going to be able to put very challenging targets out there between 2017 and 2019 that have the capacity to generate even more jobs. Well, Star Wars. Star Wars is going to bring them in their droves. You'd be setting lightsabers at Kerry Airport if you can get away with it. Well, screen tourism itself has been an amazing story for us in the last couple of years. Uh, our relationship with HBO means that we now are associated with the biggest project on the small screen, which how, is Game how, of Thrones. When you say your relationship with HBO, how does that work? Is it their television channel producing great telly, but uh, how, how does Tourism Ireland work with all of that? Uh, well, we have a licence agreement with HBO which allows us to use the Game of Thrones uh, logo for free. Uh, it means we're calling Northern Ireland Game of Thrones territory there are new Game of Thrones tours there and uh, it's seen in excess of 20,000 people alone last year come in on the back of Game of Thrones uh, in its own right they have 18 million fans on Facebook 3 million fans on Twitter so we've been doing joint campaigns on social media Tourism Ireland is the fourth largest agency in the world on Facebook with 3.6 million fans and with 200 friends each on average that gives us 720 million digital connections so it's a, so very, that's a very very mutually very beneficial deal mutual uh, is, is the force strong with Tourism Ireland can you tap Lucasfilm to get some kind of crossover going we already have the force is very strong with Tourism Ireland and our relationship with Lucasfilm has very good, been very good in the last number of months. They produced three short films for us, which if we were to buy the advertising space and social media we've got, it would have cost us 12 million euros. We've been working with uh, closely with them in relation to Star Wars 8, which launches in December 2017. So I think next year is going to be really exciting for Star Wars fans. You can't tell me a single thing about it, except that it was filmed here. Well, I wouldn't even tell you that but I mean the bottom line is that we're really excited about 2017 and may the force be with you <laughs> Niall Given CEO of Tourism Ireland thanks very much for joining us on The Right Hook Thank you so much The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7 seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips MitsubishiMotors.ie an extra 500,000 tourists coming to the country. They'll need something to do and this uh, next item will give a little bit of an idea of something they could do on the 16th of September because that has been designated Culture Night 2016. Uh, it's something that happens every year. It had its origins as a one-city event in Dublin in 2016, a decade ago. But this year, some 350,000 people were going to take part and they're going to visit museums and galleries and historic houses and artist studios and cultural centres right across the country. To get a feel for how big it's going to be, this year we're joined in studio by Lawrence Mackin who is the Arts and Ticket Editor with the Irish Times. Lawrence, how are you? I'm very good. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you in. Um, This would have started out and I mean no disrespect to its organisers being viewed as somewhat highfalutin. I suppose so. I mean, I think a lot of people have that view of the arts and anybody who sort of works in it uh, a bit like myself, we spend most of our time fighting that view and trying to do away with it and say that it's not highfalutin and it is for everyone and that we have all these, you know, hundreds of institutions and we have all these thousands and thousands of artists and thousands and thousands of people who are working and producing work that is there for everybody to be seen and all they need to sort of do is go out there and get a hold of it and get a taste of it. And And the more people who do that, the better. And what I thought was brilliant about this... uh, because I remember being out in Dublin one evening walking through Stephen's Green and there were queues of people just all over the place and it was for culture night. They were getting into buildings that otherwise would be closed and they wouldn't see the inside of them. It's not, shall we say, just art galleries. It is historic buildings as well. Yeah, historic buildings. All those sort of little doorways with brass plates outside them that maybe you might have wondered about and wondered what's in them. And I think as well, there's so many galleries as well and spaces that people do walk past anyhow. You know, they might be open during the day, especially a lot of sort of smaller art galleries. And they wouldn't be in people's consciousness 
business at all uh, to even think that something would be going on or to think to sort of jump in on their lunchtime, which you can do in all these art galleries, of course, you know, and most of them are near, I think nearly every gallery in the country is free, apart from sort of certain exhibitions. And to sort of get people thinking, you know, just just go in, just have a look. And Culture Night, it's in the evening. There's a different energy at night. I think, you know, people are a bit more adventurous maybe at night. They want to have a bit more fun. They're after work. They might have had a couple of drinks. All of that's good. And they, they might just go in somewhere where they might not have before. And do you have to plan the evening out? For example, you're, you're, because of the queues, which do exist, you might end up queuing for something for an hour. So does that mean you miss the opportunity to do something else or can you put a plan in place beforehand? You can totally put a plan in place. I never do. Um, I totally <laughs> recommend against it. I think it's an absolute waste of time. Every time I go to festivals or anything like this, I sort of throw plans out the window because um, best laid plans and all that sort of stuff. I think it's actually better just to wander around and to sort of pick your little area that's a city that you want to go to. I mean, the beauty is because Dublin's quite small and if the weather's decent, you can sort of walk around. You, can, you could go from one side of the city in Culture Night and to the other in one evening. Probably on bikes is the best way to do it. But I mean, I would usually just sort of pick me little squares and they've, they've done it on the website quite cleverly this year. You've got the sort of Monto and the North Georgian Quarter up the north, which sounds very posh, uh, but, it, but <laughs> it's just the north side, which I love. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, you can just sort of wander where, there for a couple of hours and then go over to the south side and go over to these little areas and they'll just show you all these little places on the maps, which uh, is brilliant. Pres- presumably, the cas- is the casino on the list? The casino is on the list. That's the casino, a bit far out. The casino, there's not a casino. Absolutely. Yeah. The casino at Marino. Um, <laughs> but, you know, always a lovely space to get into and they always do deadly little things. Um, if you want that one you'll need to get on your bike Dublin Bus are also doing buses uh, and they're running all around the city as well there's trad music on the buses so you're going to have to take that one in your stride if you're a trad music fan you'll be delighted um, so there's, there's so much stuff going on that I, I wouldn't recommend making a plan but you do see people there with their catalogues out doing their box Now ten. it is 10 years old but it's not just Dublin anymore No it's spread out it's all over the country now it's in Sligo it's in Limerick it's you know it's. I think you'll find nearly every city has something going on they've even started doing stuff abroad they're doing stuff in New York they're doing stuff in Paris apparently they're doing something in Leeds must be a big Irish community over there. I'm not really sure what's going on. I think one of the things is that people do come looking for uh, it's 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 unusual in that people probably look for the big events and there aren't big events really with Culture Night there's loads of deadly stuff going on but it is about these small spaces these small off one, one off things these things are going to stumble upon that only 50 people are going to go to and that makes it all the more special because you know you're only going you're going to have this little sort of thing you can boast about maybe for a couple of days afterwards I mean it's about living in the city that you're in as mm. well and, and we were just talking about tourists there and you know on your average day a tourist will learn more about a city than someone who actually lives in it. Because we, we did the tourist thing recently. We got the bus, which, you know, kind of twee in its own way. But we got to see the inside of an awful lot of places that otherwise I just walk past. And and it, it's it's about taking the opportunity to do that when it's presented to you, which Culture Night does. Absolutely. And I think there's another thing as well, and this is sort of a wider problem with Dublin, is we don't have, because of the, the way of our, our city's history and the way we've sort of socially designed it, uh, we don't really have a lot of people who are living bang in the city centre. I've lived in an apartment on Connor Bridge. I've lived in Dublin 8 and now I live in Dublin 7 and you don't really get people that live in these sort of hard cores of the city so Culture Night you know sort of brings life into those places in the evenings makes you sort of think about what could possibly be uh, in a a lot of ways that you could actually if you got people back living in the city centre so it's not just businesses and shops and office and what could happen out of that and that's kind of exciting So last question who organises all of this I mean it it isn't just something that happens presumably a lot of people put effort into it and is there money in it for them or is this all an altruistic adventure Um, I've sort of worked on events for it it tends to be very very sort of disparate it is funded by the Department of Arts it's funded by the Arts Council it's funded by Dublin City Council and then but what really powers it is 
all the individual galleries putting stuff on, all the individual places and all the individual artists willing to put in the extra effort to stay open late, to put on a different show. I mean, it's like anything. I mean, I know everybody says, sort of accuses artists of always complaining about not making much money, but they don't make much money because everything is for free on the night. So you are getting sort of one little sort of window shot to go and sample 20 different things. What I'd hope is that people then go out and, you know, buy a couple of tickets for the artists involved. See, and it, you, you struck a chord there because it's about places staying open later than they normally would. Why don't they stay open anyway, particularly during s- peak tourist times of the year? The idea of the museum closing at five o'clock. If you go to London, the museums are open till nine. Yeah, I mean, it comes it, it comes down to money. You know, you, you have to pay people to keep these places open. You have to keep uh, security open and all that sort of stuff is expensive. There is an argument there. A lot of people say Culture Night should be, you know, turned into a three-day festival. I wouldn't agree with that at all. But there is an argument there, certainly in the summer months, that, you know, they could do sort of a monthly, you know, once-off uh, Thursday night a month, one Thursday a month, where galleries and stuff try to stay open. And there has been sort of efforts to try and pull that together. That is something I'd love to see happen and hopefully it'll come. Where can people find out more about the 16th of September? Is there a website? It's all on the website. It's on culturenight.ie. It's a very big website. There's loads in there and uh, you can see, I'm sure yourselves will have stuff on. There's certainly plenty of stuff in the Irish Times about it. Lawrence Mackin, Arts and Ticket Editor with the aforementioned Irish Times. Thanks, Lawrence. Thanks again.